You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. One of the use cases that we've been thinking about a lot recently is the explosion of the sheer quantity of digital evidence. So we're talking about many terabytes of audio video uh, footage from body-worn cameras, web cameras at every corner, video recordings from everyone's smartphone devices. I think that blockchain holds a lot of promise for managing all of that digital evidence. Blockchain. Is it a new way to deal with accounting and finance? Is it an innovation destined to change the Internet as we know it? Or is it a bridge too far? Let's explore how blockchain might alter the way courts operate in some practical down-to-earth ways. To do this, I might ask that you imagine that it's 10 years in the future. You're with a clerk's office that handles the court's records and financial transactions. It's a Friday afternoon, and a typical customer, we'll call him Wyatt, is in line to pay his monthly $200 time payment schedule that he set up after his drunk driving conviction. At 3.05, Wyatt hands over the money to the clerk who records the transaction and issues a receipt. Wyatt would love to find somebody to hack into the clerk's financial system and change that $200 to $2,000. In fact, he's talking to Sergey, who Wyatt assumes knows something about hacking. Now, what Wyatt doesn't know is that the clerk's office uses blockchain technology as part of its electronic accounting system. Blockchain is an incorruptible electronic ledger that can run on minimal administrative management costs. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Paul Embley, Director of Technology Services, and Di Grasky, a consultant, both with the National Center for State Courts. Di and Paul have recently co-authored the paper, When Might Blockchain Appear in Your Court? Welcome to both of you. Well, hi, Peter. Thanks for inviting us to talk about blockchain with you. I think it's important to start with the idea that blockchain involves three existing technologies in kind of a new way. So the first technology that blockchain uses is encryption. The second existing technology that blockchain uses is a consensus algorithm. So the idea here is that the creators of a blockchain can set up the governance rules for when new blocks will be added to any given chain. And those consensus algorithms are totally within the configuration and control of the blockchain creators. The third existing technology that blockchain uses is a distributed ledger. And the idea here is that all of the participants, which we call nodes, all of the nodes involved in a blockchain have their own copy of the complete blockchain. That means that in contrast to a kind of a classic current database, that resides in one location, on one server, a blockchain is distributed 
across all of the nodes. So your question, Peter, was how could blockchain thwart the bad guy's attempt to hack the clerk's accounting system? And there are a couple of ideas here. One is that Wyatt and Sergey would actually have to manipulate all of the copies of the blockchain. Otherwise, it would be easily detected that one copy of the blockchain was different than all the others, meaning that it had been compromised. So it would be much, much easier to discover a, a hacking attempt and much, much more difficult for the hackers to get through all of the other security systems for all of the people or nodes who have got a copy of the blockchain. The other idea is that each of the blocks in the chain are encrypted. So even assuming that Wyatt and Sergey were able to put their hands on every single copy of the blockchain, they would then have to bust through the encryption of that one uh, block and, and manipulate it. So those are a couple of the ways that make a blockchain very uh, favorable from a security perspective. Paul? Blockchain has a dubious ancestry since it started as a ledger system for Bitcoin. Do you think blockchain's history holds back its acceptance? First of all, Peter, thanks for uh, having us. I know Di already thanked you, but I wanted to add my thanks. Um, yes, you are absolutely correct. Uh, blockchain is held back because people have difficulty understanding it, and so then what they can understand is they can understand money and so they keep on focusing in on this whole bitcoin money aspect of blockchain and so that what they don't realize is that uh, blockchain is used for so much more than just cryptocurrency and that uh, its application is actually a, a great a great opportunity for many, many different sectors to be able to use that immutable ledger technology. Some states require the clerk to be the repository for court records, financial transactions, and accounts. Die. two questions. First, how does having the blockchain ledger spread out over a thousand computer nodes square with this legal requirement for a single repository? Second, who owns all these independent computer nodes? Great. That's a great question, Peter. And I think first, um, just like Paul was making a distinction between some of the public blockchain implementations like the cryptocurrencies, it is absolutely possible for there to be a private blockchain, meaning that the, the nodes who get to participate in that blockchain are very, it's a very small number. It's a very well-governed number. They would, could be some of the court's trusted partners in the, in the justice system. And so I think it's important to note that you don't have to have a thousand nodes in order to have a blockchain. You could have two nodes or three nodes. So, but more to the point, the idea that there should be a single authoritative source, the clerk, for the financial transactions, for court records, and like that. So the idea is that the blockchain can hold a block that points to that official authoritative record. 
it stated another way, Peter, you do not have to actually distribute copies of all of the judgments and receipts and transactions. Those can live in one single repository, but they could be protected with a blockchain. You could be granting access to them through a blockchain with, through the use of a pointer. So if the question arises, who owns the nodes, you could respond to a funding body, all of the computer nodes reside within the clerk's office. Yes, okay. and also the idea that the clerk would be the authoritative source for all of those digital uh, mm. documents, like judgments, like the financial transactions, and all of the other participating nodes outside the clerk's office would just have a pointer into the clerk's repository. One question I have is that if the clerk is operating an internal blockchain of as few as three or four computer nodes, doesn't that weaken the advantage that blockchain has of being unhackable due to the large number of independent computer nodes that would have to be hacked? Yeah, I see what you're saying, that the when you think about public blockchains like those used for cryptocurrencies, the security relies upon the sheer volume of the number of nodes to have a copy of that blockchain. So I understand what you're saying. Of course, though, if you have a private blockchain, you could also layer on some additional identity authentication techniques to bolster your security. Sure. And, and Peter, I would I would add to uh, what Di said. There are some instances where it probably does not make sense to use a blockchain. And in in your example, where you have a closed uh, office there with just a, a few clerks, that is probably not a good use of uh, blockchain technology. Whereas if you go to uh, what we commonly uh, refer to as a centralized state. Let's use, uh, say, Utah, for example, because all of their clerks uh, report into the court there. Then you have multiple nodes, and uh, that would probably make more sense. And where blockchain really has the promise to shine is when we're doing transactions across uh, agencies. So, for example, uh, arrest warrants or criminal histories or any of those things where we have multiple partners involved, and we want to make sure that uh, our record is is common across all of our different uh, partners. Paul, I've heard that blockchain is power hungry. By that, I mean it takes lots of computer power, data storage space, and electrical energy. Is this true? And if so, how can we address it? So great question, Peter. It's interesting that this question kind of goes back to the first question you asked me about, uh, you know, uh, what about the history of blockchain? The cryptocurrencies that we talk about are absolutely power hungry and use a lot of energy. And that's where you end up with the server farms off in Greenland. The private blockchain does not have that same power consumption uh, requirement just because uh, you are dealing with a lot fewer transactions than you are with, say, a Bitcoin. So while it is true that uh, if we tried to do, uh, you know, the federal budget on a blockchain, that would uh, probably be 
cost prohibitive, something like criminal histories or uh, arrest warrants or some of the other things, uh, protection orders, uh, those would not require that same power consumption and would draw those same concerns. A blockchain has the potential for applications well beyond account ledgers, and we'll explore some of them right after this short break. I'm Angie Van Skoik, Court Administrator for the Municipal Court here in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado. A vital part of my work is my membership in NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. NACOM offers many educational opportunities I'd otherwise not be able to partake, including the annual conference, which this year will be held at the fabulous Bellagio Resort in Las Vegas, Nevada. Please make a plan to attend, and if you can't, you will be able to watch sessions being live streamed on your laptop. You'll be glad you got involved. Ah, we're back. Now, in your paper, you describe some ways courts could benefit from blockchain technology. For example, arrest warrants. Now, for the sake of discussion, let's say that the court and the sheriff's office already share an electronic warrant issuance, service, and cancellation system. Di, what would be the benefit of installing blockchain technology on top of this existing system? Yeah, that's a that's a really good one. And just as Paul was describing some of the use cases that make sense or could make sense for blockchain. I, I think what you're describing here is a system where two of the criminal justice partners, the sheriff and the court, are already have a well-functioning system as between the, the two of them. Um, but Peter, as you know, there are a lot of other participants in an arrest warrant system. So for instance, you're going to have Lots of of uh, local law enforcement agencies who need to be aware uh, that there is an active warrant available or that a warrant has been quashed. Your jail is going to need to know that. Um, we know that many of our colleagues in probation and parole are always asking courts for information about new arrest warrants for their existing clients. You know, the list goes on and on. So I think mm -hmm. that the possible benefit of having a blockchain to manage arrest warrants is the ability to expand access to the warrant information while still maintaining security, which we know is very, very important in terms of uh, criminal data. Now, you already mentioned judgments in your paper. Now, I can see the value in a distributed system like blockchain, but there are so many different paths judgments can take. For example, some states still have transcripts of judgment where lower court judgments are transcribed to a general jurisdiction court. There are also foreign judgments sent from one state to another for enforcement. Di, how would blockchain work with judgments like these? Yeah. And, you know, Peter, in um, the article that Paul and I uh, wrote for Trends last year in 2018, we were talking about courts' very real concern about their their court orders getting out into the wild, right, and them not being able to confidently know that any changes to a judgment would be reflected in all of those copies out there. So, 
Paul and I are thinking that blockchain could really help solve this serious problem. And the way that it would do it is kind of similar to that idea of a pointer that we were talking about earlier. So you could um, have a distributed access through a blockchain, but the block would just have a pointer to the court that is the single authoritative source for that judgment. So that let's say if I took a, a divorce decree from Arizona and I registered it in Colorado with the Colorado courts, the Colorado courts could just point back to that divorce decree. And of course, in, in that sense, then whenever an issue came up in Colorado, the Colorado courts could take that pointer and look at the most real-time, up-to-date version of that divorce decree from the Arizona courts. Paul, expungements is yet another area that many folks are interested in. With so many entities involved, the court, multiple law enforcement agencies, the prosecutor, victims, potential employers, how would blockchain improve on this cumbersome process? I, I know that at one point uh, I was very enthusiastic towards blockchain when I kind of first hit the market. And then uh, then when I started thinking about expungements, uh, my head started to uh, get to the explosive point. I, I became disillusioned about the potential for blockchain in the uh, public safety justice space. But as with all technologies, they continue to evolve and improve. And now we're at a point where actually you can, uh, there are ways that you can mute that. I, I want to be careful here because I'm sure there's some technologist who's listening to this podcast who will uh, write in, but, uh, but you can essentially uh, expunge that particular record. And uh, it gets into a lot of technical details, but the good news is that uh, it is, an immutable record, but it can actually be expunged. So I think we're back to a happy place with a blockchain. There's another question that I always like to ask, so I'll address it to both of you. Will the advent of blockchain technology create new jobs? And if so, what kind of jobs are we talking about? Basically, give some career advice to our younger listeners. So uh, I, I think that's a, a great question, Peter. And uh, will it create new jobs? Absolutely. Will they be in the courts is an even more interesting question that I, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. I, I think that uh, you're already seeing blockchain in the courts, but it's mostly in the form of things that uh, litigation that's coming into the courts. So Proof of ownership is a great uh, opportunity for blockchain. Uh, we talk a little bit about contracts, but proof of identity is another one where blockchain has huge, huge potential, especially when you start talking about some of the third world countries where they don't even record births and things like that. Being able to get rid of child and sex exploitation and things like that. So. I think that there's a lot of opportunity and potential for a lot of jobs. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see about if those jobs ultimately end up in the courts. I, I agree with everything you just said, Paul. Blockchain is uh, just one tool 
among many, many technological tools. And I think that as it evolves, uh, like other technologies that we've witnessed over the past decades, its best and highest use is going to shake out and some of the sillier things are going to fall away. In our article in the Trends 2018, we did try to highlight the importance of state and local courts being prepared for new kinds of evidence coming into their court. Um, and Paul, you highlighted some of those. So those are not really new jobs. They're just maybe new skill sets or new awareness of technology that our current court employees um, need to be prepared to handle. So let's go back to the question that we asked at the start of the podcast. How likely will blockchain technology be commonplace in courts? Die? You know, one of the one of the use cases that we've been thinking about a lot recently is the explosion of the sheer quantity of digital evidence. So we're talking about many terabytes of audio video uh, footage from body worn cameras, web cameras at every corner, um, video recordings from everyone's smartphone devices. I think that blockchain holds a lot of promise for managing all of that digital evidence. And when I talk about managing digital evidence, we're talking about two or three different ideas here. One is just the desire uh, in a local criminal justice environment to store that digital evidence only once, but expose it to all of those key uh, participants in the system from local law enforcement to the prosecutor, to the courts, to the appellate courts, on, on up. The other aspect of managing digital evidence is a very real concern that it's difficult now to determine whether digital evidence has been tampered with. And I think that blockchain does hold the promise of validating the authenticity of some of that digital evidence. Paul, what do you think? Uh, another area where I think we're going to start to see, uh, at least in the courts, is probably around things like protection orders, where we need to ensure that that uh, protection order uh, not only is valid, but also be able to have that protection order enforced uh, no matter where that person is who uh, holds that protection order. And so I think that uh, that's another potential use for blockchain to be able to uh, be used whether somebody's on holiday or if they've moved across state borders or whatever that uh, they would be able to uh, access that mm -hmm. almost like an electronic health record yeah absolutely i want to thank Di and paul for helping explain blockchain today this is undoubtedly a technology on the rise and we need to be prepared and stay knowledgeable Di, paul your understanding is deeply appreciated. Thanks to both of you. If you're interested in learning more about blockchain technology, including the link to Dai and Paul's paper, When Might Blockchain Appear in Your Court? I encourage you to visit the podcast page on our website. There you'll find a narrated version of their paper as a bonus podcast episode and the display version in the show notes section. Now, we received a question about our February podcast on Hurricane Florence in the North Carolina courts. Andra Motika wrote in asking, 
Did the North Carolina courts lose any files or paper documents as a result of the hurricane? And if so, what did they have to do to recover those files? So, we asked Caitlin Emmons, trial court coordinator for the 4th Judicial District in North Carolina, to come back and respond. So, Caitlin? Yeah, so um, a lot of the preparation work that went into preparing for Hurricane Florence was based on preservation of files. So we were lucky in that most of our damage came from the ground up, um, and that meant that the efforts our clerks put into moving files to higher ground really paid off. In the event that we did have file destruction, which we actually did not have any files here in North Carolina, and I imagine that in many other places across the country are microfilmed, which means they are preserved electronically, the reconstruction would always be possible. I'm sure it's a pain in the neck, but it would have been possible. But we were really lucky in that I don't believe any of our documents suffered any damage, and so our clerks were able to kind of hit the ground running as much as possible when they got back without having to recreate files. Thanks, Caitlin. If you have a question about any of our podcasts, you could write us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. We'll respond to your question at the end of a later podcast. So until next month, I'm Pete Kiefer, and this has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.